As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. We are approaching our 400th episode, and that's kind of shocking to me. (laughs) And of course, to um, my producer, Adam Isaac. And we've been talking about what we can do to keep this show relevant, but also do a little bit of a look back at the 400 episodes we've created together. And one of the ideas we came up with is to have a guest host for a series of episodes. This is where we get to bring in some friends, we get to bring in other people that we've either spoken to on the podcast in the past or have wanted to, or just a whole other lens on the work that it is that we do. So for this first guest-hosted episode, uh, I wanted to bring on my friend Majel Connery. Hi, Majel. Hello. Majel is a musician. She's a composer. She has a PhD in musicology on 20th century opera. Um, And she essentially is one of these intellectuals that is just really fun to have conversations with on topics that are super deep, but especially when they pertain to sound. And um, Majel, I wanted to first talk about your project, Rivers. Tell us about that project and and what you did. Yeah. First of all, I've never been introduced as an intellectual before. I was like, is this strange or flattering? I can't decide. (laughs) I think it's flattering. Um, So the project is called The Rivers Are Our Brothers. It's actually a quote from um, a letter by a Native American chief Seattle beseeching the government to interact with the land, in this case, the United States of America, as though it were our closest kin. This is an idea in Native American ethos that you have to treat the land like it's one of you. You should relate to it like a brother or a sister or a cousin or a mother. Um, It's also been turned into a beautiful children's book. So the concept behind Rivers Are Our Brothers is to increase the impact that an artist can actually have on change as regards like environment and policy. Arts are generally a thing that is entertaining and I want to actually have an impact on people's lives. These songs, uh, so Rivers is a 25-minute song cycle, which means an interconnected seven-song set. And the premise of the cycle is that each song in the cycle takes on a, a new persona. Each song begins, I am a. So I am a cloud. I am a mountain. I am a river, and so on. And the idea is to give both personality and the capacity for storytelling to come from the mouths of these otherwise inanimate elements in our environment and to 
thereby endow them with a kind of human creativity and a human persona that we can respond to and interact with. And what I found is that in performance, this really touches a nerve with people. It might maybe bring us back to childhood because this is a thing that like in my family, we used to do this all the time as a way of manipulating <laughs> children to do things. You would make them feel sorry for the table or bad for the broccoli. Um, it's something that somehow our brains respond really well to, I think. And I would love to hear what you think about this, Indre, because I'm just <laughs> spouting off here. But like, this is the the underlying premise of the song cycle. And to me, I have greater capacity with these songs to make a real effect in people's lives than I have ever had before. First of all, people just seem to love them in a way that really warms my heart. But secondly, people will say, tell me the books that you're reading. What podcasts are you listening to? I want to participate in the world of ideas that you are thinking about and writing about. And my hope is that would ultimately be able to translate to, you know, making actual change in the world. Um, this this cycle, and I'll, I'll shut up in just a second, but this cycle was originally premiered and commissioned by an environmental musical organization in Sierra County in Northern California. And we performed it in 20 outdoor locations for three different school districts. Um, and there was an interactive component, component, there's a curricular component. So so it's just one step in the direction of making music have a real and visible impact on the world, particularly as it pertains to climate, especially in California. So it was in learning about this project. And um, with your permission, uh, can we play one of the tracks from the from the album at the end of the at the end of the episode? Of course, of course. That'd okay, be great. Awesome. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Um, but it was this project actually that perked my uh, my or peaked I should peaked peaked perked I don't know uh, <laughs> that struck me as particularly relevant uh, for the guest that I I wanted you to interview with me because her whole. You know, the, the book that she just wrote, it's called The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants, is all about sort of the unheard sounds that now we can finally hear because of these digital tools of our planet. And it, it kind of reminded me of like, you know, this project that you had when you were up in the Sierras in residency, and then, you know, like you taking on the voice of rocks and clouds and plants. So I was really curious to hear what you would ask Karen Becker, who's our guest today. She's a Rhodes Scholar and uh, and she's an author, as I said, of this book. And, and really, I think her interest is in understanding this kind of almost underappreciated role that sound plays, not only in the lives of humans, but actually in the lives of so many of the other species we share this planet with. Yeah, I mean, I think there is an underlying bid for anthropomorphism in Bacher's book, which is to say when she describes how bats have nicknames for each other, <laughs> it alludes to this thing that humans do. And when she talks about how is it corn seedlings will grow toward the sound of water, there there is a human-like quality in it, which makes us as humans more likely to think, well, I recognize myself in that behavior. Am I like a corn seedling? Am I like a bat? It really has this effect for me of like narrowing the gap between what constitutes a human and what constitutes 
um, one of these, I don't know, creatures, this creaturely universe. And I think that's one of the, the like, the it's this kind of weird magic that her book offers. You know, and a lot of scientists shy away from anthropomorphism, but I think that now as we try to th- try to understand how the science can help shape society, which is essentially the whole goal of our podcast, uh, we really need to at least see anthropomorphism as a potential tool to help people connect with and, you know, actually act. (laughs) So without further ado, let's bring on Karen. Karen Bakker, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. And as our audience already knows, because we've just been chatting, uh, Majel is joining us, too, as a guest host on this episode. Hi, Majel. Hello. So I want to start with something that you write about in your book that was really surprising to me, that peacocks, it's not all about the tail (laughs) and about sort of the visual display. What? Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what we're missing from the peacock? Yeah, and so this story is a great illustration of a human truth, which is humans tend to believe that what we cannot personally observe does not exist. So although we have known about the mating dance of the peacock for millennia, obviously, it was only recently that scientists tried to listen to peacocks as they danced their mating dance and found that peacocks were making loud sounds below human hearing range. So To understand the significance of that, you have to know that human hearing range is pretty limited compared to other species. Some species make noise in the high ultrasound at high frequencies above our hearing range. And lots of other species make sound in the infrasound below human hearing range. And that is where these peacocks were making these noises. So if you, their tail actually functions a bit, the biomechanics of the tail function a bit like an amplifier. So they're making these deep infrasounds, it would sound like a car revving its engine right next to you if you could hear it. You can't. But the peahens, the females, can hear this. The male peacock is out there vibrating, making sound that vibrates the comb on top of the peacock's head. It vibrates the comb on top of the peahen's head, like whole new meaning to Hmm. good vibrations. Here they are. And the peahen is actually assessing the suitability of a mate and making um, choices about a mate based on this sonic, this acoustic display, not merely on the visual display. And they actually used eye tracking technology on the peahens to also notice that they weren't actually looking at the tail as much as we would have thought. And what's astounding to me is we had the technology that would have enabled us to hear this for over 100 years, but only recently did we even think to ask what if. And that is actually like a central theme of the book, The Sounds of Life. There's so many animals that do actually make sound, and we were completely unaware. I mean, that to me just speaks to the 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 sort of, I guess, bias we have to think about vision as our most important sense, uh, as the thing that you know people talk about. It dominates you know twenty percent of the entire cortex of the brain, and it's like so well established. And um, can you talk a little bit about sort of? like maybe why we've been ignoring this, all of this information in the acoustic world. And, and is, it, is it true that like hearing is a kind of lesser of our distant senses, thing, you know, our senses that actually sense things far, far away? Um, and is that just like, is that what's uniquely human? And, um, or is like, is, you know, what, what accounts for the fact that vision has been such a, 
um, well-studied aspect of the human brain um, and sort of biases us in terms of understanding other animals and their sentience on the basis of what they can see. I feel like we could have a whole hour on that, but okay, I'll just offer some thoughts. Uh, it's pretty profound philosophical as sort of, uh, you know, um, sort of a neurological or biological question. Um, first of all, humans are terrestrial animals primarily. And so vision is more advantageous to us than it would be for aquatic species. If you're underwater primarily, then you're going to rely more on sound. Animals can hear a lot further underwater than they can see. And so that's why the majority of marine species are, are have much better hearing than humans. And um, as Chris Clark, who's um, a whale biologist and a bioacoustician at Cornell says, he says, whales, for example, see the world through sound. That is how important that sense is for them. Humans have also evolved um, to, to have a fairly narrow hearing range, even compared to other terrestrial species. And so we're sort of doubly disadvantaged in that regard. And then add on top of that this other layer, which is the scientific revolution in, in Western culture, which privileges sight over sound. Think of the microscope and the telescope as being these iconic inventions of the scientific revolution, which expand our ability to you know see into space, see back in time, decenter the human from the center of the solar system, the microscope helps us to see these entirely new microbiological worlds and expands our imagination. It's all through the sense of sight. So optics actually becomes a paradigmatic sense and sensing technology with the scientific revolution. I, I, I sometimes claim that sonics is actually the new optics because what I'm talking about in the book, listening, is actually being used not only to listen to nature, but to actually, for example, in astrophysics uh, or cosmology, listen to the universe to, you know, encode um, gravitational waves, for example, as vibrations we can listen to. And there's also some debate about whether there is a vibrational aspect to quantum biology. You might have heard of the debates about whether our sense of smell is actually um, whether we are hearing with our noses. That's pretty hmm. controversial claims. But but suffice to say we don't think of the um, sound acoustics or more broadly um, vibrational information, be it you know all the way from the nano scale <laughs> to the macro scale, as a mechanism through which to study the world around us. And that is something we've inherited from that period of the scientific revolution in the, the Enlightenment. So that actually creates a whole set of opportunities for people who are just willing to ask these what if questions and use these cool new digital listening techniques in, in a lot of different fields. Yeah, and you, you talk about like um, a lot of these these different tools that now we have. You describe audio moth, uh, you know, which maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of how that that can like put the hands, put into the hands of sort of almost anyone yeah. um, an opportunity to listen. Um, so what what are some of these new sonic tools? So the audio moth is a DIY, a, a kind of, you know, makerspace fab lab sort of homemade device. It's open source. It's audio moth, like M-O-T-H, all one word. So you can buy one online. You can just order the parts and build it yourself. And it essentially um, uh, is a small device about the size of your smartphone that can be installed anywhere. It can be, you know, uh, affixed to a tree. It can be, you know, from high mountaintops, you know, remote forests. What's amazing about these um, digital monitoring devices is they essentially accomplish the same task 
that analog devices um, did even 10 or 15 years ago with a huge amount of equipment, like 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, you'd need to stuff all of this equipment to an entire minivan and still probably put stuff on the roof. Like it was that cumbersome. And now it fits in your back pocket. So as with many aspects of digital transformations, we've got automation, miniaturization. These are inexpensive components, highly portable. Um, and so what you get is a proliferation of people, not just specialized acoustics scientists, but field biologists, um, ecologists, citizen scientists out there using these devices to record nature sounds. And they're finding all sorts of surprising things that reveal lots of unexpected aspects of um, animal and even plant behavior. And that's what the book is about. It's about this marvelous world that opens up when, when we start listening at scale. Karen, I'm super interested to know whether us having all this additional information about how animals and insects and even plants interact in this like heightened more dimensional way has that translated to actual change on the part of the human beings who are the bearers of this knowledge like is it translating to policy changes to like a proliferation of new environmental orgs meant to protect certain aspects of these populations yeah that's a great question so for people who haven't read the book um the book tells a series of stories about pretty amazing discoveries about the hidden sounds of nature and a lot of that is simply to be celebrated because we didn't know, for example, that baby turtles called to one another through their shells before they hatched. Amazing. We didn't know oh, wow. that bats have really complex social behaviors. They remember favors. They hold grudges. They have individual vocal labels for family, kin, name, gender. They socially distance and go quiet when ill. Bats are amazing. Bats trade food for sex. Bats do all these things we didn't know because until the advent of digital listening, we could not decode their sounds and we did not understand um, their behaviors to the depth we do today. So so the book um, talks about all of these discoveries, the coolest of which I think are actually plants. Like who knew that plants were so exquisitely sensitive to sound? But your question is a great one. So what? In the midst of the sixth mass extinction, the great biodiversity crisis we're facing, is this changing behavior? And there are a couple of good examples. So one is the use of bioacoustics to help with conservation of highly endangered species. A great group called Rainforest Conservation has started installing devices like the audio mouse, repurposed cell phones, into tropical forests. And those devices listen for the sounds of endangered species, like elephants, or tigers, but they also listen for human sounds that are likely to be associated with poaching, like the sound of a car engine, the sound of a chainsaw, the sound of a gunshot. And they're using that to do a better job at figuring out where the poachers are and try to prevent them from poaching animals. Essentially, um, bioacoustics helps uh, amplify efforts to prevent environmental crime. Another great example is the use of bioacoustics to protect whales. So whales are really hard to spot. They spend most of their time underwater. Um, some species like the North Atlantic right whale are in dire uh, need of protection. They're really on the brink of extinction. There are only about 350 individuals left in the North Atlantic right whale population. And recently, a, a really amazing scientist named Kimberly Davies at the University of New Brunswick 
implemented a new system of these underwater aquatic drones that can identify where the whales are simply by listening. And this information is transmitted in real time to ship's captains and to fishers. Who uh, The ship's captains have to slow down and leave the area. The, the fine, if they don't, is $250,000. And the fishers have to stop fishing. And the result of this has been to um, really turn the tide for the whales. Um, a lot of them are hit by ship strikes. And since this system was implemented in 2019, not a single whale death by ship strike has been recorded. Similar systems are being put in place on the California coast. That was on the Atlantic coast. Um, similar systems for tuna in the Great Australian Bight or for turtles off the coast of Hawaii. So imagine this, you know, a population of less than 400 whales is controlling the movements of tens of thousands of ships in a watershed home to 45 million people. And we essentially now have whale lanes in the ocean that take priority over shipping lanes. So now scientists are talking about scaling this up, uh, approach up to the global oceans, which is very cool because we have a huge climate refugee issue on our hands as many, many marine animals start moving because the oceans are changing. And the traditional techniques we have for protecting them are, are not going to work. So maybe these mobile protected areas that are bioacoustics based could make a real difference. So yeah, so those are two good examples of actual conservation applications. I do want to talk a little bit about the difference between bioacoustics and ecoacoustics, as you talk about it in your work and uh, in your book. Um, but before we get there, I don't think Majel's heard about Heidi Apple's work and uh, the way that plants can hear the crunching of caterpillars. <laughs> we know that. Heidi, you, um, you have a plant right behind you. I, <laughs> yeah. I know I know a lot about trees, but 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 the, my knowledge stops at trees. <laughs> Tree knowledge is really good. Um, so um, the, the existence of biochemical signaling in the environment between plants, including between trees, is well understood. And Suzanne Simard's work, you might have heard of. Yes. The mother tree. Right. Fantastic. But the existence of acoustic communication, the sensitivity of plants to ecological information contained in sound, was not well known until a few years ago. And there were a couple cool researchers who uncovered this. One is Monica Gagliano, who runs a biological intelligence lab in Australia. And another researcher is Heidi Apple at the University of Toledo. So the experiment that um, Dr. Apple did was a pretty simple, but in a way a transgressive experiment because she did, uh, she used a methodology that's usually used in animal studies. It's called a playback experiment. So playback experiments consist of playing different noises and watching your animal subject respond. So, you know, you play the sound, it runs away. You play the sound, it comes towards you. You play the sound, it sings back. Whatever the animal does, it's quite easy to spot. So doing playback experiments with plants is a little odd because how does the plant respond? It can't, it can't move, can't, you know, gesticulate. So actually what Heidi decided to do was look at the release of defensive chemicals by the plants in response to um, sounds of predators. But she, of course, had to have a control. So the way the experiment was set up is you play different sounds, white noise, maybe Metallica, or I don't know, Brahms, and then you might play rainfall, and, uh, but you also play the sounds of insects chewing on leaves. No insects are present, no leaves are being chewed, no plants were harmed in the course of this experiment, it's just the sounds. But the plants are wise to this, and astounding as it seems, they only release their defensive chemicals in response to the sound of the insect chewing on the plants. Wow. She then did another follow-up experiment, and it got even weirder. 
She plays two different sounds. One is the sound of the insect predator for that plant. It's a model plant in biology. Um, Aridopsis taliana, a very common plant. So she's playing the sound of that plant's predator chewing on leaves. And then she's playing the sound of another insect chewing on leaves. But that second insect is not a predator of our plant. Guess what? The plants can tell the difference. They only release the defensive chemical in response to the sound of the insect that is their predator. So that means that plants have a sound, a sense of hearing that's exquisite, that's much more sensitive and nuanced than our own. And you may be wondering how they hear. Well, the best guess we have is that plants have little hairs on their leaves, just like the cilia in your ears that are letting you listen to me right now. They're vibrating, you know, particle motion in the air. So these little hairs, these little trichomes, as they're called, like cilia on the plant's leaves are vibrating in response to the insect making these noises. And so it's a kind of mechanoreception, and that is allowing the plant to discern the ecologically relevant information contained in those sounds. And that means that the plants are hearing with their entire bodies. Their sense of hearing must be orders of magnitude more sensitive than our own. And also it suggests that this discernment uh, is is in the genetic code, because I, I, I can imagine that the leap that a plant learns... <laughs> from, I don't know, like it's mama plant. Uh, what is the, you know, what is the predator sound? Like that can't, surely can't possibly be true. There must be, right? Right. Okay. So here <laughs> is another cool hypothesis and it's called the acoustic tuning hypothesis. So um, but Monica Galliano says, you know, it makes sense that organisms should be able to derive information from sound because um, biochemicals are, are, are very expensive, you know, to produce and they're slow. Sound is fast and it's cheap, you know, in, in energetic terms um, to decode. So, uh, you know, in the long arc of deep time, as organisms evolve before they have eyes, uh, uh, before they have ears, before they have all these sort of sensory apparatuses, they can sense vibrations. So, and that actually leads to a really good point. There's a wonderful scientist called Peggy Hill who studies something called biotremology. And she argues that the very first sense was the ability to sense these vibrations and sense through the water, you know through um, if there's a predator, if there's a prey, if there's a, a mate, right? But moving on, um, you know, uh, to, to this question. So Monica Gagliano has this really great observation that plants um, are able to decode these sounds. And um, from that, um, researchers have gone on to ask whether plants make sound. And Monica Galliano did a very cool set of experiments where she looked at corn seedlings. So it turns out that corn seedlings, um, they um, sense sound at a certain ultrasonic frequency. And she determined this through a set of experiments that examined where they um, grew their roots. Hmm. She also did another set of experiments playing the sound of running water. No running water, no moisture gradient was present. The plants grow their roots towards the sound of running water. And then her reflection was, well, you probably, like humans, we um, make sound in the same uh, frequency range that we hear sound. So are the corn seedlings also making sound in that particular frequency range? And they were. Corn seedlings make very faint, very high ultrasonic noises. So um, more broadly, this gives rise to a hypothesis that species are sort of adapted to make and hear sounds in frequency ranges that are um, ecologically relevant for them. We know, for example, that moths can 
jam bat sonar. They can hear bat echolocation and they can jam it. We know of acoustic tuning relationships between pollinators and the pollinated, between flowers and bees or flowering vines and bats. So it's quite likely that over time, the plants would have evolved to have these trichomes, these cilia that vibrate at the specific frequency um, that is made by their insect predator. Again, honed by evolution to have this acoustic tuning between the plant and its predator, um, which sounds astounding and kind of unbelievable. But then if you start looking for them, you see these acoustic tuning relationships between pollinator and pollinated or predator and prey all over nature. And that's probably what's going on. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Can I jump in again? Yeah. Like, you don't have everything to ask, everything Maisel, I'm asking is in. so <laughs> unscientific. Um, I want to know, Karen, what do you think is the best possible outcome for the kind of work? that you do. And this like what feels like a movement over the last, you know, since Suzanne Samard and all the people who laughed at her and all the people who have laughed at a generation of scientists making these discoveries, now that we're sort of over that and there's almost this hypnis quotient to talking about the sensate qualities of plants and animals, what is the best possible way that this information could actually transform the world that we live in? Well, I think, first of all, I think it could transform science. And then your question, the world more broadly, I'll start with science. So um, Western science has tended to assume that unless a species is vocally active in our hearing range, we tend to assume it is mute and deaf. It is insensate to sound. And we're now learning that that is incorrect. There are many species that are either vocally active beyond our hearing range uh, above or below our hearing range, um, or they are—they—they uh, they actually are affected by sound, or they can discern ecologically relevant information from sound. So that leads to the hypothesis that rather than assuming things are insensate to sound, unless proven otherwise, we should flip that on its head and assume everything is sensitive to sound, unless proven otherwise. So there's been some very cool experiments on, for example, um, seagrass, which is so important in marine environments. It's like the marine equivalent of the savanna, like home to a lot of biodiversity, um, very important carbon sink, and seagrass has been disappearing at a really alarming rate. And researchers have recently found that seagrass is profoundly affected by loud noises, um, you know, seismic blasts. Um, it it, it um, essentially destroys an organelle that they use for gravity for uh, actually absorbing their food, for orienting themselves in the water and growing roots. It's as if if you were exposed to a very loud noise, you not only lost your hearing, but your stomach exploded and you couldn't absorb any nutrients and also it knocked you off balance so you couldn't stand upright. So some of these plants are literally between 100 and 200,000 years old. They're clonal. They're some of the oldest living organisms of which we're aware in the world. They're profoundly sensitive to sound. So one of the things in the world that I hope will emerge from this understanding is 
a much more aggressive approach to limiting and um, eliminating noise pollution. So noise pollution is this ambient um, environmental threat of which we're not aware, but it affects us as well as other species. The effects are profound. Even ambient levels of noise that you accept in an ordinary urban environment have been shown to increase your stress, increase your risk of heart attack, of stroke, uh, cognitive uh, impairment. Um, some studies show that living close to a highway, even that level of noise, can increase your risk of dementia. So um, limiting noise pollution is actually a huge human health challenge, but it's a, also a huge environmental health challenge because a lot um, of the impacts on biodiversity we're seeing may be due to noise in a way we had never previously understood. So I think you're about to see a complete overhaul of environmental assessment, of environmental regulations, um, to massively limit the amount of noise we allow ourselves to be exposed to, much like the um, whole apparatus for chemical pollution was created after Rachel Carson's, um, Carson's Silent Spring. I would love to see that level of awareness of noise pollution as a huge threat to all of us across the tree of life be something that people are aware of and talk about and and it's coming. Um, so that I think is a one important difference we could make in the world. There's another important difference which I, is much more sci-fi and speculative which is about the potential for interspecies communication. Uh, we're not there yet, but some scientists believe we're going to be able to use these technologies to essentially invent a non-human or zoological version of Google Translate to speak to other creatures. <laughs> I mean, that's fascinating. And I want to get there. But before we do, you know, I want to also just come back to this idea of eco-acoustics because we're kind of starting right. to talk about it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit how, about how these new digital tools are allowing us to actually track the degradation of certain ecosystems on the basis of the sounds. Okay, so to, great question. So to understand that, just a brief um, lecture here on bioacoustics versus ecoacoustics. Bioacoustics is a science of listening to individual organisms. It's a very cool science because you can listen anywhere, anytime, with very little or no disruption to the environment. And I like to say a camera can catch an animal walking down the forest path, but a microphone can hear them hiding in the bushes. So we have been able to, um, you know, identify species that we thought had gone extinct locally. They're still there. They're hiding from, if they're vocally active, we can hear them. Scientists have discovered entirely new species this way. The new species of blue whale was recently discovered in the Indian Ocean from listening. Wow. So it's a very cool tool. Um, Ecoacoustics helps you expand that sense to listen to entire soundscapes. So bioacoustics, you're listening to individual organisms. Ecoacoustics, you're listening to an entire landscape and all the collection of sounds. And what's very cool is that in a, in a very healthy soundscape, there's a lot of sound being made at different frequencies. The birds are at one frequency, the frogs are at another. Um, that in fact, there's a hypothesis, the acoustic niche hypothesis, which says that different animals evolved to communicate at different frequencies. A spectrogram that is kind of like an MRI for environmental sound. There are these beautiful images of frequency versus time. If a, a, a trained ecoacoustician can read a spectrogram like a radiologist could read your x-ray and they can discern really subtle uh, signs of health 
and disease long before a landscape looks degraded, it will sound degraded. And that helps us very, very, at very low cost and in a very far reaching way, start to assess the health of ecosystems, listen for the sounds of climate change, develop a much deeper understanding of environmental change and environmental degradation. And so ecoacoustics is set to become a major tool for monitoring environmental health um, in all sorts of places. So the question then is, um, so what? Um, and what do we do about that? Um, in some places like Costa Rica, scientists are now using ecoacoustics to make decisions about things like logging. You can actually tell in some cases some logging, uh, very sustainable like Forest Stewardship Council logging practices can actually enhance biodiversity, whereas other logging practices will um, degrade biodiversity. So um, the, these ecoacoustics techniques are actually being incorporated into practices on the land where people are listening to ecosystems and helping that um, actually guide not only their conservation decisions, but their sort of land management decisions. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that all over the world. I, it strikes me as totally amazing that any of this policy has managed to be implemented, given how many hurdles you would have to climb over and how much resistance there would be from the existing trade routes or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, this has been decades in the making. The first people who started... So the book, of course, interweaves digital listening with deep listening. And deep listening, grounded in place, often associated with indigenous knowledge and traditional knowledge, has so much um, deep understanding of the connection between sound and place at an intellectual, at an emotional, psychological, spiritual level, right? So digital listening is the way uh, th through which Western science starts to, to catch up, <laughs> to rediscover what these communities have long known. But this has been going on for nearly a hundred years. There have been there were all a lot of great pioneers in the 60s and 70s that were doing this. Um, so they they laid the groundwork, and that's what's enabled this this most recent generation of digital acoustics to really make um, rapid inroads in environmental uh, regulation. And then, of course, the other point is that the biodiversity crisis is now so extreme. The rates of, uh, of species loss are so unprecedented that, that uh, you know, regrettably um, opens up the policy field for new tools because clearly the tools we're using are simply not working. Do coral reefs have an acoustic distress signal or are they participating in this sort of sonic world of like, hey, you guys, <laughs> we're here. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. There's a whole chapter in the book on honeybees, which are amazing in and of themselves. There's another chapter on coral. Hmm. Um, when people think about these species that make noise, they often think of charismatic megafauna like whales. I've got a chapter on whales or elephants. I've got a chapter on elephants. They say lots of cool things. But coral is so delightfully unexpected as a, you know, as a creature that could hear sound or make sound. So in this in the book, uh, in the chapter on coral, I tell a little story about the research done by Steve Simpson and Tim Gordon in the Great Barrier Reef, where to their to their astonishment, they actually found that coral larvae 
which are born in these mass spawning events that occur on a full moon that are sort of like these amazing underwater fireworks with thousands. If you've ever dived, you know, during a mass spawning event, it's like this amazing fireworks, all the coral larvae, multicolored coral larvae wash out to sea. And scientists assume they just bobbed around haplessly, pushed by winds, waves, and currents, and eventually floating back to some random reef and settling. So what Simpson and Gordon demonstrated is that the coral larvae can hear sound. They put them in these choice chambers. They're like aquatic mazes in a lab. They can swim down different arms. At the end of one arm, you might have white noise, another arm, human music, another arm, the sound of a degraded reef, another choice is a healthy reef. The coral larva will swim towards the healthy reef. And moreover, if given the choice between any random reef and their home reef, they'll pick their home reef as if they somehow imprinted on the sound of their home reef, like a coral lullaby, from the few hours before after being born before being washed out to sea, which is astonishing considering they are microscopic creatures with no central nervous system. And all they have are these little cilia, remember the cilia, on the outside of their bodies that are somehow listening. They're detecting the sound. They're discerning the sound of their home reef. And then they use those little cilia to push themselves back to the reef. If you knew, you know, if you could really see how small they were compared to the distances they traverse, it's like the great salmon migration. You know, it's as impressive. So this is, an, this is astounding. So when I say that everything in the world is sensitive to sound, this is a great example. None of the scientists working on coral reefs would have believed this except for Steve Simpson's meticulous experiments. So now we're confronted with this kind of sense of delight and awe, but also wonder at the harm we're doing to coral reefs. Motorboat noise can be harmful. Seismic blasting can certainly be harmful. One of the things that Simpson and Gordon ended up doing is actually starting to use music, quote unquote, the sounds of healthy reefs as a tool to regenerate coral. They're working on the world's biggest coral reef regeneration project off the coast of Indonesia. And they have found that if you put underwater speakers and you play the sounds of healthy reefs, you have to imagine these degraded landscapes, bare, empty, barren of life, it's a real act of faith to put these speakers underwater to play the sounds of these healthy coral reefs, but it attracts fish and coral larvae back. It gives me goosebumps even to think about it. They come, they settle, and they're starting to restore the reef with the help of these sounds. Now, this is not going to solve the problem of climate change, ocean acidification, the disappearance of coral worldwide, but it is a tool in our toolkit we can use in this desperate race against time to save even a few coral reefs and some, you know, music therapy for the environment. Who knew? <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about uh, about uh, machine learning and how that can help us learn to communicate uh, with other species. I know that you alluded to it as kind of being a little bit on the frontier and um, kind of less established than a lot of the other science you talk about in your book. But so can you tell us a little bit about like where we are in terms of our ability to actually send signals out to other social species like elephants, for example, and have them understand what it is that we're trying to say. Mm -hmm. So first of all, there's a long tradition of playback experiments um, in ecology and biology that don't rely on machine learning. So you can, you can sort of isolate a specific sound, you can guess what it means after careful behavior of the species, and then you can play the sound back. And if it gets the reaction you thought it would, you know what the sound means. So for example, they, um, scientists figured out that elephants uh, make a specific sound as a mating call. So a, a female a elephant in Africa is only in estrus, available to mate for a few days, 
every four years. The, yeah. And the, the, you know, these matriarchal herds, the, the, the males are living apart. But somehow when the female elephant is in estrus, those males come very quickly across enormous distances. And because we couldn't hear the sounds, scientists are like, is there some telepathy here? Like, what's going on? Well, it turns out there's a specific sound in the infrasound that the female elephants are making, and the males know exactly what that means. If you play that sound from some speaker, you know, set in the savanna, the male elephants will come running, be very disappointed not to find a female elephant. But so we, we have these techniques of understanding what these signals mean. What machine learning does is accelerate our ability to find patterns in the vocal communication of other species and then to attempt to, to um, guess how um, those sounds might be associated with behavior. When I say amplify or accelerate, I mean, you know, Yossi Yobel, for example, in Tel Aviv has done experiments recording um, captive bats and records tens of thousands of vocalizations and decodes the patterns. Um, that's how we know about some of this cool stuff about bats and their very complex social behaviors. There's also um, really cool work being done with elephants, Lucy King in East Africa. What she has been able to show is that elephants have a very specific signal for honeybee. And moreover, that um, Elephants can describe humans with great specificity. They can distinguish between a threatening male human hunter and a non-threatening male and women and children. Elephants describe humans with way more specificity than we are able to describe them. So machine learning, as we record these very large data sets of non-human sounds, offers us the opportunity to expand this pattern recognition and associate it with behavior. And scientists are now doing this for lots of species, but in particular dolphins sperm whales, elephants, and honeybees, and in some cases devising new ways to engage in two-way communication, not any of which are really successful yet, um, but some believe a breakthrough is, is, is imminent. Um, I'll give you one example of the work being done by Tim Landgraf in Germany. He does very interesting work using a combination of computer vision and bioacoustics to document the sounds of honeybees that have a very complex language. It's vibrational, it's positional, it's spatial, it's acoustic. They orient their bodies to gravity in the position of the sun because they can see polarized light. Amazing. Um, so he has used artificial intelligence to encode certain honeybee signals into robotic bees that go back into the hive and try to communicate back with the honeybees. Now, this is more like a um, proof of concept. It's not successful. Uh, and it's um, even when it works, Tim Landgraf is not sure why. But the point is that we're now evolving these mechanisms that combine natural language processing with robots and attempting to iterate ways to engage essentially in more sophisticated playback experiments. And, and our ability to iterate and repeat an experiment is accelerated by artificial intelligence. So we're on the brink of interspecies communication, so some researchers believe, with honeybees, maybe with dolphins, maybe with sperm whales, which is where most of the research effort is being dedicated. Hmm. I mean, is that because there's like, I mean, we're so fascinated by these massive marine mammals like whales and dolphins. Like, what, what's, uh, what is the goal with some of these uh, uh, interspecies tools? Uh, what, what are we going to say to the whales? 
Yeah. I mean, maybe they'll say, look, we just don't want to talk right now. <laughs> I mean, one of the things is we're assuming in our human hubris, they actually want to talk to us. Maybe they have no interest in doing so. Um, but that concern aside, I mean, whales in general and sperm whales in particular are a really interesting choice for efforts in interspecies communication because they have very large brains. They are highly social. We know that they have culture expressed in dialects that evolves over time yet is stable and linked to specific family groups. All of this gives us reason to think that if a, a complex form of language with some symbolic content exists in other species, if that exists, we're most likely to find it in a, in a species like sperm whales. Sperm whales communicate in this very cool Morse code-like signaling too, which gives rise to the hypothesis that it could be some kind of code. Um, but, you know, the, I don't think we're going to have a Google Translate option for East African elephant or Southern Australian dolphin or sperm whalish anytime soon, because there are a lot of assumptions we're going to have to dispense with to really translate our experience into that of other species. For example, we can't assume other that whales have anything like vowels, consonants, syllables, phonemes. We can't, maybe they, there's one paper that um, conjectures they communicate in some, in like kind of like 3D hieroglyphics or holograms that they're sending to one another with echolocation. So there's, there's really no way to anticipate. Maybe the whale, the female and male whales have different languages. Maybe they speak different languages in different places or different times of year. All of the human assumptions we have about language have to be discarded. And that means it's it's incredibly difficult to start to decipher these sounds. So it may be that we, we are not able to breach the barrier of interspecies communication. Or if we do, it's only going to be for very simple signals, like a hunting signal or a danger signal. If whales have oral history and poetry, we're not going to be deciphering that anytime soon, I don't think. Majel, any last thoughts? Yeah, I wanted to ask <laughs> I wanted Go to ahead. ask more about Karen, you said something very early on that seemed like a complete sidebar, but absolutely blew my mind. You said, look, the jury's out on whether we might actually be able to hear with our noses. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay, wait, what? So there are synesthetic components. And, and like on some level, it makes sense to me, right? It's like if you the, the senses have an interactivity to them. If if you if you are blind and deaf, like I'm sure your ability to move around a room is way better than mine would be if you blindfolded me. Um, but but you're also suggesting there's a synesthetic component to the individual senses. Is that is that right? And is that substantiated? Uh, yeah. So actually, it's slightly different. Although I love your explanation. Um, <laughs> So what I was referring to, when I, when I make the claim, and it is just a claim, that sonics is the new optics, uh -huh. my claim refers to the use of um, vibration or acoustic information uh, in various disciplines to uh, discern more information about the world. And so the examples I gave were listening to acoustic communication across the tree of life, um, the book I, I, I've written, but there's also this very cool work being done in astrophysics about listening to the universe, okay? Mm. So list, uh, you might have heard about some of this work whereby there are certain um, uh, gravitational waves um, be sort of encoded 
as um, as vibrations that that and that that pattern of those vibrations can then be interpreted mathematically by physicists. It sounds uh, eerie and spooky. No, it sounds like the music of the spheres. Music of the spheres, exactly. And then um, the idea about um, the smell actually relates to a claim, and I want to specify this is a claim. Okay. <laughs> um, that certain quantum biological phenomena may have a, a a vibrational component at the molecular scale. Okay. So um, quantum physics rarely delves into the realm of biology, but it has done so with respect to a couple of phenomena, and one is avian navigation and photosynthesis. We know that there are aspects of quantum uh, effects that actually explain how birds navigate. They know you know, where the magnetic field of the earth is and they use it to navigate. And a, a, a set of arguments has been made. And the fir- idea was first put forward by Luca Turin um, in Greece, and it's contested and it's divisive. Um, but basically what they argue is that molecules and atoms which of course are vibrating right um with energy and energy of just the right frequency a quantum could cause your springs to vibrate in a certain way and essentially there's the phenomena is called inelastic electron tunneling and essentially this is what explains how uh we can have such a finely tuned sense of smell so um i will i don't want to actually emphasize that in the podcast because it's well beyond the book but um, I just, you know, thought I would answer your question. But the, the I guess my point is that um, in many fields, w- we haven't paid attention to the information that vibration, tremology, you know, could give, could give us. And people are just waking up to the idea of using this in some way in their own specific field, all the way from the very small scale, quantum, <laughs> to the very large scale, the cosmological. And that is an unfolding uh, scientific adventure, which probably someone will write that book in 20 years. Mm. So uh, just to the start of that. Wow. Well, I want to remind our listeners uh, that Karen's really fascinating and incredibly well um, researched and referenced book. Uh, the The reference section is, in, is incredibly robust. The Sounds of Life, How Digital Technology is Bringing Us Closer to the Worlds of Animals and Plants is now available at booksellers everywhere. Karen, thanks so much for joining us on Inquiring Wines. Thank you so much for having me. Majel, what did you think of our conversation with Karen? What stuck with you? I am struck by what feels like a movement in popular science books to bring human awareness to plants and animals and the way that they are part of a network with us. And like, this is a really old idea, but it just feels like there is a positive net effect of like all these people getting on a bandwagon together and proclaiming this message loudly enough over and over and over that it's Mm -hmm. starting to crest and like leak into public consciousness. And I find that to be super exciting. Like more and more people now know about Peter Volleben's Hidden Life of Trees. You know, like mm-hmm. if you throw a mm-hmm. stone in your neighborhood, you can like hit somebody who's read that book now. And I just find that to be really encouraging. 
Yeah, me too. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've been a big fan of melding science and art uh, for, for so long. And now it really feels like we are in a place where it's becoming popular and mainstream. And, um, and that's exciting to me. And I think that whether even even in sort of these kind of science journalism books, there's an artistry that is coming through that uh, that that wasn't always there. And, you know, it, it yeah, it's definitely something that I, I find exciting. I also think that Karen is a really good communicator. Like yeah, she doesn't she, she doesn't get bogged down in details. She understands that anecdote and story is the way to like first you have to fascinate us, make mm-hmm, us wonder exactly. at something and then tell us why it matters. And she's really yes. good at that. Yes, yes, I totally agree. And uh and you know her her book is just a trove of these great stories. Um and and yeah, just this this like very vivid imagery of of how there's this whole sonic world that uh, can tell us so much about, you know, these other species and yet so often is so ignored. So I, I want to actually turn back a little bit to your work. And, and in a few minutes, we'll, we'll play uh, one of the tracks from Rivers. But before we go, tell us about your latest podcast project and where we can find it. Yeah. So I just released um, a new interview podcast on women in classical music, and it is on Cap Radio and the NPR Network. The title of the podcast is A Music of Their Own. Do you know that reference, Indre? Uh, I mean, I think it's from A Mind of Their Own, right? Or (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what is A Mind of Their Own? Uh, Isn't that, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but isn't that Virginia Woolf? It's called a room uh, of one's own. A room of one's Virginia own. Sorry. Wolf. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Uh, you converted it into like a science topic <laughs> where she <laughs> yeah. argues on behalf of like female scientists. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a. It's the fundamental argument for why women need income and space. And it seems like sadly that's a still really relevant thing today. Like we still need income and we yeah. still need space and opportunity. So this. This podcast is about why in 2022 we are still struggling with this really intractable problem for why there is such a disparity between men who get jobs in the music industry and women who do. And so I wanted to specifically go to women who seem to have surmounted that problem and to be really enjoying a lot of success and to find out what they are doing that the rest of us might not know about? Do they have tools mm. to share with us? So there are six separate interviews with some women, women who are relatively well-known and others who fly a little bit more under the radar, but they are all tremendously transparent. Some of them break news. They're like emotionally available and heartbreaking and amazing. And like they were life-changing conversations for me. So um, I hope people will check it out and you can find it in all the places where you normally find a podcast. All right, so uh, we're going to play a piece from Rivers. Um, And in the meantime, thanks for joining us, Majel, and for guest hosting this episode. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you, uh, our listeners, for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank longtime patrons David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Rihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Awal, Dale Lemaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Additional music for this episode comes from Majel Connery. 
And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Change my body